0: Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics!
1: Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger.
0: Here are your
1: hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. Have you done anything this week? Nothing at all. It's like a rerun, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) This is why we won't be missed.
0: (laughs) Every episode is exactly the same as the last one. From, From, like... Now on out until the end of the the show, it'll be, if you didn't, nope, nope. No, not done anything anything interesting. Summer holidays are great.
1: It's not, I'm back at work, you bastard. Summer holidays are great. Yeah, (laughs) just because you're a work-shy, fop-lazy student. I am neither of those things. At the moment, you're in between. Yeah. Students. Educational limbo. (laughs) You're in between educational opportunities. (laughs) Yeah. Even though you know where you're going and what you're doing.
0: Is that the excuse you use when you drop out? Like, I'm in between jobs. I'm drops. in between educational
1: opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> it works,
0: I suppose. Yeah. Alright, okay,
1: so sure, we've got nothing to say. So our lips are sealed. Mm. It's David Byrne once had it. Uh, yeah, alright, Should we do some emails then? Yeah. Alright, well here's the drill, people. Here's the sitch. <laughs> as they used to say on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I'm going to have to start editing some emails to try and get more in as possible. I know that never goes down well. I yeah. apologise. People, people pelt me, don't they, when I edit emails with tomatoes <laughs> and rotten fruit. <laughs> but anyway, it's going to have to be done, because otherwise we're going to end up with loads that don't get read. So we're going to try and get through as many as humanly possible. Superhumanly possible, I suppose. Uh, first one's Luke Jackanetti. Luke emailed in with revamped Andy and in relaunch. Michael, hey guys, wanted to drop you a quick, albeit late, line about your second post crisis episode, which contained an issue I have actually read, which is a rarity for me. The issue in question was Flash number one, which I picked up many years ago at my LCS, always creatively named Big Annual Sale. Was it big? And was it annual?
0: No, I think it was quite a small by annual thing.
1: Right. So I heard. So the title <laughs> was in fact incorrect <laughs> advertising. Misleading. I haven't read the issue in years, but I remember it being a lot like I expected the first post-crisis Flash issue to be. Doing everything possible to distance itself from the pre-crisis counterpart. For all that the net likes to grouse about how the DC universe turned dark, mean and dismal during the 2000s, it all started back in the post-crisis era, as DC desperately did everything they could to erase from readers' minds the silly, stupid company they used to be, and instead promote the mature, intellectual company they had become. Which is quite a good way of putting it. Mm. That is actually true about the post-crisis in many ways. Those early post-crisis flash issues are a mixed bag. I distinctly remember a really tasteless segment when Dr. Tina McGee is beaten by her crazed husband. It seems that they are being discreet by not showing the abuse directly, only showing the outside of the house and the dialogue. But then it all comes crashing down as we get sound effects which look borrowed from Batman 66 to give us the proper audio cues for the scene. Can you imagine DC doing something like that nowadays? Or what the backlash would be from the interwebs? Uh, Hasn't... Who wrote that? Was it Mark Barron? Mike Barron? I don't know. I was reading an interview with Mike Barron, and um, I think he's pretty much admitted to being cooked off his head when he was writing The Flash. Okay. Which may explain some things. Right. Whatever works for you as an artist... Kevin Smith swores by the evil weed, doesn't he? He does. I think it's no coincidence that his work since taking that up hasn't been as good. See, he says the other. Otherwise... He thinks the other way, doesn't he? Yeah.
0: So, oh, the Red State was interesting. Okay. I'll give him that. Wasn't that the one that was good for two thirds? Uh, it
1: was good. On un- yeah, didn't the ending lose its way?
0: See, I never watched it. I just heard you. Me and your mum watched it, and then at the end of it, your mum was like, "That
1: was a Kevin Smith film." Yeah. And then she said, "So you watched some Quentin Tarantino, did he?" and that's what it felt like but it was interesting for that reason it was Kevin Smith trying to do something different right. so I thought that was quite fun I've not seen Tusk
0: that's the new one isn't it
1: which yeah uh, and he's doing a sequel to Tusk right which I've not seen either and then isn't he doing Clerks 3 and Malrats 2 yeah is the world really asking for
0: Malrats 2 is the world really asking for a, a Clerks 3
1: I think Clerks lends itself more to sequels because isn't Clerks really, it's about their lives? Yeah. So you can do, well, what are they up to 10 years down the line? What are they up to 20 years down the line? Okay. Whereas with Mallrats, mall rats wasn't really about much, apart from
0: hanging around in a mall. Unless it's kind of like World's End. It could be. Jason Lee is still hanging around malls and won't grow up. It could be like World's End, but World's End was quite funny. I liked World's End, did you ever watch it? Yes. Yeah. Did you watch it on Netflix? I watched
1: it when we got it as well. Uh, I like I World Man. Anyway, Luke then talks about the Hawk World post-crisis revamp, which is always interesting because I know nothing about Hawkman. Luke concluded, anyways, I really dug the two post-crisis episodes as it is an era which holds much fascination for me as a DC Comics fan, getting into the line solidly in the post-crisis era as I did. I really enjoyed hearing about Green Lantern and Green Arrow especially, as I had not heard much about these books save for Sean Engel's coverage over on just one of the guys. Hearing about Wonder Woman was a treat as well as I ended up with the first six issues of the run for free a few months back. A friend of mine gave me two long boxes of comics he was not interested in dealing with anymore. All in all, fun pair of episodes taking an honest look at the period. Love the show, Steve. That made it come back towards the end, didn't it? It did. Luke also you mailed in about the Green Arrow series. I had to be someone else. I had to become a mini-series everyone forgot about. <laughs> Has everyone forgot that Mighty Bar series? I'm guessing. Arrowed, Andy and goateed Michael, I can honestly say that even though I am not at the same level as a lot of my podcasting colleagues as far as comics knowledge, it's rare that you guys cover something which I did not know existed. This Green Arrow miniseries from Before the Crises is one such book. Mike W. Barr and Trevor Von Eden on the goateed moron Green Arrow. (laughs) Why do you think he's a moron, Luke? What do you not like about Green Arrow? It can be a bit obnoxious. And as we discovered last week, Clark doesn't really like him very much, Clark Kent. Yeah. But I think there's something interesting about him. I do find him quite interesting for his political motivations. I don't always agree with his political motivations. And as we've said before, he strikes me as one of those guys who would bore the hell out of you down the Pope, wouldn't he? That's all he would ever want to talk about. And you can just see
0: how how Jordan sat there trying to watch the football. Isn't there a rule that you don't discuss politics at the pub? And was that rule created because, <laughs> because of because of Oliver Queen?
1: <laughs> 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 oh, I think the pub's the best place to talk about politics. We're only for a small portion of the evening, not oh, okay. the entire night. Anyway, yeah, Mike W. Barr and on Eden. I'm not a Green Arrow guy, but this still sounds like something I would dig. And one of my closest friends is a Green Arrow fanatic. How on earth did I not know this existed? Luckily, my aforementioned friend will let me borrow the series. I do have to admit, the idea of Mike W. Barr, the Batman guy of the era, sticking Green Arrow into a Batman story and Ollie having to bungle his way through, sounds brilliant. Not everyone fights crime the same way. Much like Hawkman was always shown to be more of a police officer instead of a detective... Green Arrow would not necessarily have the same level of deductive reasoning that Batman would. Which was our reasoning as well, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Throw Green Arrow into a Batman story and watch him sink. Yeah. Which pretty much is what Mike Bard did. Uh, Luke concluded his email with a story about Ellen DeGeneres, which was quite funny. So thank you very much, Luke. Uh, Andrew Morton emailed in with guano indeed Hi Andy and Michael I'm halfway through part one of your all-star Batman and Robin coverage and I have to say it sounds god-awful sorry god awful what our coverage <laughs> is that what he's saying though? our coverage was god
0: awful I guess so everyone's a critic I can't disagree with him
1: I get the impression that the star is supposed to be taken in the way celebrity is in I'm a celebrity ha <laughs> ha very funny I've never been overly keen on Frank Miller and nothing will make me believe that this story is not pure tripe as opposed to over the top parody and Batman twat man more like thanks Andrew Morton why did we not make that joke it's, it's, uh, it's just sat there isn't yeah you know it went right over our heads thank you uh, Ryan Daly host of the Secret Origins podcast Flowers and Fishnets a Black Canary podcast Dead Boffin Spies a Star Wars podcaster and first time emailer to the show I felt compelled to write in as soon as the episode began because I wanted to thank you profoundly for the service you provided Or maybe for taking a bullet for me. See, I run a black canary blog called Flowers and Fishnets, along with an accompanying podcast. For about two years, I've laboured with the idea of covering the canary's part in All-Star Batman. But every week, I think there's got to be something, anything, I would rather talk about than that. Blessedly, now I don't have to. I can simply direct my listeners to your show if they want to know how abhorrently Frank Miller depicted black canary, along with, you know, everybody else in the book. Thanks again for covering these issues so the rest of us don't have to. This was a terrific, hilarious episode and I'm looking forward to part two. Alright, so he doesn't think our coverage was goddamn awful. Just the... Just the, the, the actual comic was, was goddamn awful. Michael's lie. You know how you can always tell which side writers come down on Batman or Superman? This is that. Frank Miller dislikes both. That had me laughing so hard in the car I needed to pull over. <laughs> Keep up the great work, Ryan Daly. So there you go. You made somebody have to pull over. I almost caused an accident. It would have been more impressive if he'd have been drinking. That's <laughs> always funnier, isn't it? Okay. It shoots out the nose. <laughs> drinking and driving yeah, and I, would have caused an accident. That I mean, drinking milk or something. I'm not advocating knocking back the whiskey while he's driving to work. Unless Ryan's job really is that bad. <laughs> yeah. He has to begin the words. Oh burned in my throat oh, oh, oh that was funny Michael oh I the car that would have be been hilarious <laughs> yes because the car accents are hilarious are they not anyway thanks Ryan and I like how he slipped in his, um, his plugs for his podcast and his blog there very well done very professional mm, I like that very good Chris Franklin has emailed in hello Leyland's first thing Andy's reading of the Batman's infamous GD speech is award worthy I like him <laughs> he's my favouritest ever. And your best. He's my favouritest and my best. I'm hoping he's serious. Right, okay. I want to see that on the list of nominations <laughs> for some podcasting bollocks next year. Right. List of top favourite scenes from a podcast this year. I want that nominated.
0: Oh, yeah, they do podcast awards. They do podcast. You have to
1: buy your way you? in. Do you? What a con! Have we ever won one? Yes, because you know me. Do you think I'm going to pay? <laughs> To get us nominated. Ah, right. No, the 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 work is its own reward. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So nominate me, Chris. <laughs> so we don't have to buy Yeah, it. I, I don't I don't want to nominate myself because that's like raving egomania. <laughs> Although, apparently that's how you get an Emmy, isn't it? You have to you have to yourself. you have to nominate yourself for consideration. Yeah. Right. Okay. To get an Emmy award. If you want something, go for yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, very true. Uh, anyway, I agree. Continues Chris. That's another reason I like him. If this is Miller holding his successors accountable for taking his Dark Knight work far too seriously, and applying it to every aspect of not only Batman, but superheroes in general, then this is a brilliant, in its own twisted, demented way, pastiche. Rather though, I think this is Miller flipping DC the finger, as he laughs all the way to the bank. This was around the time DC stopped caring about their public image and just let creators dump on them in any way that sold a book. DC certainly didn't market the comic as a satire, but as a straightforward series. And yes, I remember the early rumblings of this line supposedly being accessible to new readers and, God forbid, children. This is as far from kid-friendly as mainstream comics can get methinks. So I'm looking forward to your following episode covering the issues I couldn't bother to read. Thanks for enduring the pain for me and making it more enjoyable than the published work itself. Chris waving back at your eyes because I waved at nice. and I just did it again. <laughs> oh what a nerd. Chris also had this to say about All Star Batman and Robin, you brilliant, brilliant bastards. What a way to end coverage of a series that had no ending by not ending your coverage. Didn't that have a
0: lot of people confused?
1: I'm glad somebody got it. <laughs> <laughs> I Was beginning to think that only me thought that was funny. Although all credit, it was Michael's idea. Wasn't it? It was yeah. you who said we should just end it. There shouldn't be any end tag, should be no goodbye it should just end and I
0: thought it was brilliant I thought it was a brilliant idea I saw responses and thought "Mm, maybe (laughs) maybe it wasn't that brilliant (laughs) it made me laugh and that's all that matters and
1: that's all that matters and it obviously made Chris laugh as well Mm -hmm. and I know for a fact it made Sean Engel laugh alright so there you go (laughs) we got it (laughs) I thought it was funny I genuinely did genuinely made me chuckle Stephen Lacey liked it as well right okay so that's funny as well not a whole lot to add to this continues Chris other than you guys picking this apart was far more enjoyable having to read the bloody thing I really love Batman Year One so I hate to associate with it with this and as Michael pointed out this doesn't work as a setup for Dark Knight Returns because everyone is frigging nuts right now The beauty of Dark Knight Returns is taking the legend of Batman to a somewhat logical conclusion, though a slightly skewed lens. The lens is already cracked, glued back together incorrectly, minus several pieces, and shoved in the wrong camera backwards. Looking forward to the next episode, or at the very least, your public apology about how you feel horrible about the episode abruptly ending, and how you plan to finish it under the different name, perhaps Oi Brats Graphic Novels or something.
0: (laughs) I do like that idea. Oi Brats! Pamphlets! Floppy, floppy. Oi, brats, floppies. Yes. Let's call them
1: all the insulting <sighs> names that we can think of. Hey, brats, illiterature. <laughs> do you like that one? <laughs> That's quite good, that Yeah, thanks, Chris, that was funny. And I do like the idea of a uh, public it apologising. I'm not going to, because, like I say, it made me laugh. <laughs>
0: I, I think we really should apologise. It was our fault for making it delayed. The fault was entirely on me.
1: Oh, no, he's on about um, the, the, the episode. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not apologising no, for All-Star Batman and Robin. No, no,
0: I, I know. But we, we did actually record the last part of the show, and just to, just to know you guys <laughs> who actually did it, we'll be releasing teasers of it every month <laughs> on this show starting... In four weeks. Starting in four weeks, yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs>
1: That's, that was funny. <laughs> Gabriel Jimenez emailed in, hello guys. As usual. It's like old home week this week, isn't it? Yeah. There's a couple of newbies that have dropped by to say hi, but for the most part, it's all the old hands stopping in to say hello on the pen pen penultimate show. Uh, as usual, good episode, enjoyed it. On to the second tier characters. Gabrielle then talks about the three books that we covered. Some excellent notes, as usual. But he brings it back to legacy characters. You ever wish he'd not said something <laughs> Overall, very nice show. Made me think back on my thoughts and history with these characters, and with legacy characters in general. I like the idea of legacy heroes. I like the idea of there being a set and fixed background on a character, how over time relationships are introduced and progressed, and eventually someone else takes the mantle and the story goes on. Unfortunately, we do not have a fixed continuity in the big two. Nothing can change too drastically, everything is subject to the next creative team's decisions and preferences, and you never know where the next retcon will happen. It gets to the point where it's difficult to emotionally invest in any story or title by the main publisher, or superhero comics in general. It sometimes seems that it's more of a chore to keep track of all the changes, what's currently in continuity, what's not, compartmentalising separate continuities and the specific history for each of them. That doesn't seem as fun. Jeez, I feel old and curmudgeon Anywho, my two cents. Keep it up, fellas. Gabriel. Thank you very much, Gabriel and Chris and Luke and Ryan and Andrew and everyone else who has emailed in. We will get to your email very soon. Again, humblest of apologies for doing some editing, but I want to try and get through as many as possible before we wander off into the sunset. But that's not happening yet. We'll be back after a break.
0: Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino created Black Canary in 1947. She debuted as a masked femme fatale that kind of skirted the law, but pretty quickly she evolved into a civic-minded crime fighter. She has mastered multiple martial arts disciplines and unarmed combat forms. Her canary cry, when properly focused, is powerful. Powerful enough to punch a hole through a wall. Black Canary has, in one form or another, been part of multiple incarnations of the Justice League, the Justice Society, and Birds of Prey. I freaking fell in love with Black Canary, and I'm proud to podcast about her adventures in comics and television. Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast.
1: Planetary is writer Warren Ellis's magnum opus. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, surely that's Transmetropolitan? Well, yes, lovely listener, you would be correct in singling out Transmet, a wonderfully angry slice of science fiction dystopia. But wait, says lovely listener number two, what about the authority? Again, yes, lovely listener, you would be correct also in singling out Ellis' take on the superhero genre, without which Mark Miller wouldn't have a career. I guess Warren Ellis has a lot of magnum opi. Does that look correct? Thing for multiple magnum opuses. It is now. It is now. it was different to the Authority in that it would be Ellis's chance to look at the superhero genre rather than superheroes, and he uses it to explore a lot of his favourite themes, conspiracy theories, and mythic archetypes, and featured as its title characters a team of individuals known as Archaeologists of the Impossible, which is as Ellis a name as one can hope for. The team are Jakita Wagner, strong, fast, and almost invulnerable. The Drummer can detect and manipulate information streams such as computers and other electronics. Ambrose Chase who can create a selective physics distortion field. And New Recruit Elijah Snow who can create intense cold and extract heat. This field team travelled the world investigating strange phenomena, including monsters, aliens and other superhumans. Unusual relics and suppressed military secrets for both the betterment of mankind and out of sheer curiosity. Over the course of the series, Ellis embarked upon a number of crossovers with other DC and Wildstorm characters, although sadly, the potentially most interesting team-up with the Fantastic Four never happened. A crossover with Batman was particularly interesting. My favourite, though, was the team-up between the Planetary team and the Justice League, albeit not the Justice League of the DCU. Aided by the awesome artistry of Jerry Ordway, Ellis scripted Planetary JLA Terra Occulta, which we have in this... What is this? 100-page giant spectacular thing Gee. oh there was a solicitation the other that made me laugh right it says 100 page spectacular reprinted Lois and Clark's wedding and then underneath it said 96 pages <laughs> <laughs> I presume it means without the cover
0: yeah, yeah. but that,
1: that genuinely made me
0: laugh 100 page spectacular nah really <laughs> Uh, This was because they released the Batman one in the deluxe edition. Yeah, they released
1: the Batman one in overpriced deluxe edition. And released these two together. And released these two in dirt cheap.
0: Just release them all together.
1: Yeah, put them all in the same volume. You so I don't know. Uh, You've read Planet Chainer?
0: Yeah. Have you read all of it? Yeah. I have also read all of it. You can very definitely tell where he he stopped writing it.
1: And then came back later. Because it
0: turns into a completely different...
1: Yeah, when he comes back. Well, they
0: do team up fight against the Fantastic Four. Yeah, it's a Fantastic Four analogue. Yeah. It's not the Fantastic Four. And they become the primary antagonist when it turns into a superhero story. Was that Cassidy's fault? Or was it Ellis' I thought fault? it was Ellis' fault. Was, it,
1: was Ellis like, I need a break?
0: Yeah.
1: Because didn't they do some like 24 issues over 48 years?
0: <laughs> yeah, something <like> <laughs> It just felt like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, see, we don't give that a hard time, though, do we? I, uh,
1: maybe it's. Uh, we weren't reading it That's as true. it was going along. Yeah, so. Alright, fair enough. That seems fine, yeah, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, Terror uh, The cover doesn't feature the planetary team at all. Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne, and an Emma Peel inspired Diana Prince stand on a rocky outcropping in front of a blood red sky and a low hanging moon. Reflected in the water before them, the more familiar figures of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. It's by Jerry Hardware. Do you like the cover?
0: Yeah. Is that right, isn't it? It feels like the Justice League proper are only on there to tell us that these are the Justice League analogues.
1: Yeah, to to give you a clue that that is Bruce Clark and Diana. Yeah. And Diana's the only one who's actually wearing a costume of kind. Clark's rocking
0: the Smallville. Red coat, red shoes, blue jeans. He's, he's wearing like a shirt and tie and trousers and a cardigan. Yeah, but it's red and blue, though. Yeah, oh oh So course, you're yeah. rocking
1: the Smallville primary colours right, thing. Yeah. And obviously Bruce is all in black. He, yeah. Because yeah. you know, he's Batman. Yeah. Not the goddamn Batman in this. Though. No, he's he's just the Batman he's in this. He's just the Batman in this. Shall so I tell the lovely listeners what happens in this story? Okay. In another universe, Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent and Diana Prince team up to take down the Planetary Organization. This conglomerate of but a few have been secretly controlling the course of humanity for many years, with their past crimes including the death of the Kents and the destruction of Paradise Island. After years of investigation, Bruce now has proof these people are thieves, murderers and war criminals. These three head to the lab of Julius Erdal, a time physicist. In his drunken haze, he has activated the time loop and summoned forth an alien being from the past, a being that dies, but the power used by the time loop shuts down power across half the planet, attracting the attention of the planetary organisation. Ambrose Chase arrives through a teleportation generation window and tackles Clark he opens a time displacement field around Clark's head but Clark pushes Ambrose back into the field which Bruce shuts off hopefully Ambrose is dead Bruce takes the mobile teleportation generator and they beam up to the moon base where Elijah Snow takes Clark out first jettisoning him out into space where his powers are useless Elijah wants to know where Ambrose is and sets Jakita Wagner against Diana whilst he prepares to take on Bruce Bruce reveals his parents were in the process of allying themselves with other people of wealth and vision that would stop the Planetary Organization before Snow had them killed. This is his payback. Elsewhere, Jakita reveals she destroyed Paradise Island as she carves Diana to pieces. Bruce, meanwhile, has been training for 20 years to beat Snow, which he does, but Snow gloats that Bruce can't kill him. Diana, however, can. She puts a sword through his head. With the members of Planetary dead or missing, Diana asks Bruce what he wants to do with this world they have inherited. Compared to the authority one, which we're going to cover in a minute, the plot to this one's quite simple, isn't it?
0: It is, yeah. It's
1: fun, though. Mm. It, has, it has moments, I think. Uh, Ellis opens the story really well. Diana sat on a bench in what looks like Central Park. I presume that's Central Park, isn't it? Yeah, she's in New York because she travels to Gotham City through the teleportation generators Yeah, so she's not in Gotham when we start so we're supposed to believe that it's a standard story Diana's writing home with her complaints about man's world she doesn't actually go so far as to call them sperm bank. she doesn't which was which was nice
0: mm, I thought she's a little
1: restraint in the bit, older age a bit of restraint from her though Yeah, she looks more like Diana Troy here than Diana Prince I think yeah. it's the her the curly her but whatever uh, when we she hails a cab, though, we see that it's a hover cab. Yeah. Where well, we're going, we don't
0: need roads. She says she wishes they made noise now.
1: Yeah, so they're obviously silent mm. in some kind. Um, so instantly we're like, well, is this a future or an alternative timeline? Yeah. And it really does show Ellis's command of the form taking immediate left turn. And you, you as you're reading it, you're like, oh, right, okay. I want to know what's going on here. Yeah, it's really good and it turns out it's both and it turns out that it's both yeah so that's really clever it's actually really well written <laughs> yes yeah. which shouldn't really come as a surprise given that it's Warren Ellis mm. and a lot of Ellis' stuff the thing with Ellis' stuff is there's two different kinds of Warren Ellis isn't there there's yeah. the guy who writes stuff that is just one chapter of an overall overarching narrative and mm. you can sometimes feel a little bit cheated that it doesn't take you very long to read and then there's this guy who's only got 64 pages to tell his story so he throws loads of stuff in it. There's mm. throwaway lines in this that are just brilliant ideas. Yeah. That you that anybody else or Ellis in another environment could expand into a story in and of itself. Mm. So that was really I really did like that about um, it. I thought it
0: was very cleverly written. He's got the foreshadowing of the flash couriers in this part as well. As he were. Uh, Diana says she felt a breeze going past her. It's one of the flash couriers. Oh, so she
1: does. Oh, very
0: good. And the one and only appearance of the drummer in this.
1: Yes, it's the drummer. Uh, when she teleports over to um, Grand Central. from Grand Central. she goes to Grand Central Station. Jerry Ardway's depiction of Grand Central is gorgeous. And I actually find Ardway much better at blending mundane reality with the fantastic than, say, John Cassidy. Yeah. I actually think is better in this than Cassidy is. Hmm. Do you agree? Disagree? Because you're out, boy.
0: Yeah, uh, with Ordway, he's a superhero artist, so he can make superheroes work in real stuff. Hmm. Cassidy's just an artist. He's not really best for superheroes, so it's just, look he looks weird when he does superheroes.
1: I think is a vastly underrated artist. It isn't as stiff as Cassidy's.
0: For a no, skirt. true. So the, that... the inking's quite heavy in this one at, at times.
1: Did Ordway ink it? Uh, I'm not sure. Did he ink himself on this? Yeah, just as art by Jerry Ordway, so yes, he did. Right. He inked himself. I don't mind it. Mm. I'd rather see undiluted hardware than hardware inked by somebody bad. I thought the art in this was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Grand Central Station doesn't have trains anymore but teleportation beams. And as Michael points out when she's leaving the subway in Gotham, it's the drummer. Does, uh, does he spot her though? They're, what, they're watching them, aren't they? Yeah. That's what I got from it that he was actually watching her. Mm. Why is Popeye in front of Diana Prince in that panel like? Oh yeah. That's quite funny, isn't it? Is Jerry Hardware homaging Terry Austin, though? Maybe. He always used to put Popeye in the background of his X-Men strips. Right. John Byrne didn't draw Popeye. Right, okay. But Terry Austin would add him in. I do like the the difference between New York and Gotham. New York is a gleaming city of spires and skyscrapers, and Gotham's a cesspool. Mm. So that's... Why is Gotham... Why is Gotham always a mess don't know. <laughs> Batman's just not... Well, this is a world without Batman, isn't it? Yeah. So that would explain it. Mm-hmm. There you go, I've just answered my own question.
0: Okay.
1: I love well, it when uh, that happens. <laughs> uh, Bruce Wayne is introduced. His company is Wayne Industries, which is working on developing Tesseract technology and collimating structure. I don't know what that was. Uh, me neither. Uh, okay, collimating structure. I presume it's something to do with Tesseract technology. And isn't the TARDIS supposed to be Tesseract technology? I don't know. I think it's been mentioned in... Bruce something. Wayne's making the TARDIS. Bruce Wayne is making the TARDIS. Well, that's how the back Cave can be so big.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually
1: just that little cave entrance from the 60s TV show. Okay, yeah. And then when you go in, he's obviously made it another dimension. It's another dimension. So, <laughs> under, so the cave is actually in a, in a TARDIS-like environment. That could work, That yeah. And it makes total sense. It does. It would explain why nobody ever finds it as well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it works in
1: my head. <laughs> Because I would imagine Bruce Wayne knows the Doctor. Of course. I would imagine they've had a few conversations. Peter Capaldi's Doctor has probably called him Pudding Brain a few times and put him down. Mm Mm-hmm. But then been impressed with his car. Okay. Or would you think David Tennant's Doctor would be impressed by the car? Maybe. Maybe more more Tennant's Doctor. All right, Right, fair enough. Um, Most people think that all this research into Tesseract technology is a big waste of time and that Bruce is just a useless drunken fop. Yes. Which is all part of his disguise. Diana's a big hit with all of the men until Bruce shows up and then everyone's just like alright oh, we've not got a chance now mm. Bruce Wayne's taking her home tonight couple of things here that presumably suggests that Bruce's reputation precedes him mm. so he do you think he is the player playboy in this that he only pretends to be in our universe in our universe
0: in the DC universe because he isn't actually Batman here no he's so he has not, to but... fill his night somehow yeah but you very definitely get he's playing this because he instantly changes into Batman movie. yeah
1: well and there's also the thing as well with the alcohol he's not actually drinking yeah he spills more of it than he actually drinks
0: right yeah which
1: is an old spy trick for pretending you're getting drunk yeah you never watch burn notice bits <laughs> that's what he used to do right he would okay. spill the drinks but it looks like you're drinking more than you actually are so I thought that was quite clever um Bruce obviously knows Diana And they obviously know Clark, so they've obviously had a conversation before. They're part of a cabal hiding from someone. Yes. We don't actually know who. Although it's called Planetary. Yeah. So you can (laughs) probably hazard a guess that it's Planetary. Ellis is just dueling out the information slowly, isn't he? Mm. He's not making it immediately obvious what's going on, and you're having to read it to figure out what's going on. But reading it is very pleasurable, so you don't mind. Yeah. it's, It's not something where it has to have everything revealed before the third page is up. And then the rest of it's just mindless action. Mm. He's doling out his information slowly.
0: And it's, it's not like it's anything new. Mm. It's just having the roles reversed so that now the planetary are the bad guys. And yeah. The JLA, the underdogs. underdogs yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I thought it was really good. Again, the art's brilliant. I love the art. I think Jerry Hardware's out brilliant in this. Clark has a six-minute window in which the satellite surveillance satellites... Are moving into a different orbit or something. Yeah. And so there's a corridor between Metropolis and Gotham that if he can get there in six minutes, he can fly to Gotham undetected. Mm. It does beg the question why they weren't watching Clark. Yeah. Or were they only watching him through the surveillance satellites? And if they were watching him through the surveillance satellites, would they not suddenly go, wait a minute, he's not in Metropolis anymore? Yeah. Because it is implied that they're being watched all the time, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Because they know who they are. Mm.
1: And the drummer was watching Diana. So whoever was watching Clark was asleep at the wheel, I think. Um, As with a lot of planetary conspiracy theories play a large part in the story, Bruce discovering that a lot of the technological advancements of this world are controlled by the planetary organisation. And that they put two in the back of the head of the Kents. Mm. Which doesn't please Clark. One of the few times I've liked glowy red eyes of anger. Yeah. Because it actually totally works. It doesn't explain why he melts his glasses. Yeah. Unless his glasses come from the Kryptonian spaceship. But, but it does doesn't beg out, but. The question of why he's wearing glasses in a world where there isn't a Superman. That bugs me in Lewis and Clark that right. he wore his glasses before he had a secret identity. So why is he wearing glasses here?
0: There's any explanation for that, is there? No. Yeah, I like that uh, the planetary are uh, the bad guys. Because with all the information and the mm-hmm. things they collect throughout the series, it makes sense that with that power, they can then control the world. Yeah. So, it, yeah. It's, yeah, it is good. It's also
1: interesting we learn that Paradise Island was destroyed, but we don't learn by whom. Mm. At this point, that will only get paid off later on. It is one of those things when you're reading it, you don't actually go, so did they kill Bruce's parents? Bruce's parents as well? And obviously that's the obvious implication. Yeah. So the planetary's done everything. Yeah. So essentially they bring about their own downfall.
0: True. Don't they? Yeah. By killing Bruce Wayne's parents. Did you get that the Amazonians knew they were going to be destroyed? What, when
1: they sent Wonder Woman away? They
0: tell Wonder Woman not to look behind them and so that way they'll always be there. But because she sees their destruction, Mm -hmm. they won't always be there.
1: No, it's a good reading of it. I didn't read that when I was... That's not what I got for it when I read it. I read it as they were completely unaware they were going to be destroyed. But it works. Your way works just as well. Very different Paradise Island to what we saw in the George Perez yeah. stuff that we covered. But, yeah. Jerry Ard, did Jerry Hardway Jerry worked on that Wonder Woman series, didn't he? I don't remember. He may have done. I don't know. Um, Barry Allen and Ray Palmer are also dead. Which we will learn later on. And the Green Lantern power battery is in the hands of the planetary. Mm. So they must have found the power battery instead of Hal Jordan, which kind of contradicts what we find out later.
0: Yeah, yes, it does, yeah. Doesn't it? But it was cool when we saw the autopsy on Barry Allen, mm. and there's three of him because he's at different frequencies. Yeah,
1: that's cool. And the atom Ray Palmer, killed. Um, it's Bruce Wayne who's found all of this out. Yeah. So he's obviously been dedicating his time to doing something, though he's not Batman. Detective. Being a detective, yeah. Bruce wants them brought down. So, he's obviously not telling them that he knows that they killed his parents at this point. He's saving that till he meets them personally, isn't he? Yeah. Which works. That's a nice
0: big thing, yeah. The Ambrose guy, isn't he the one who died in the main series? Yeah. Who Thingy replaced? Yeah,
1: Elijah Snow replaced Ambrose
0: Chase, didn't he? Yeah. In Planetary. But here, it's the, before that, because Elijah was, spoilers, the third and fourth member of it. Yeah. So here he's only the fourth. Mm-hmm. So this is
1: what's-his-name, then, isn't it? Before the all. Well, it's an alternate timeline thing. Yeah. Didn't Planetary explore alternate timelines? and? Yeah. So this is just an alternate timeline where Planetary are evil. Mm. Which works. It works quite well. Quite Dr. Fun. O'Dell pulls the Martian Manhunter through time from the, the Cretaceous period. There's no real explanation as to what the Martian Manhunter was doing, though. Was no. he something to do with Planetary? No. He'd crash-landed on Earth. With yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, Bruce still has lots of wonderful toys. The cave is still full of um, bats. I do like Clark being... Nice car. It's practical. Mm. (laughs) You're into things being practical, didn't you play as a kid? No. (laughs) So Bruce is still taciturn. Yeah. In uh, in the alternate timeline. His car's kitted out with lots of weaponry, but not actually guns. You'll notice. And Clark's very, I don't need any weapons... Which mm. proves to be his downfall. Yep. And Wonder Woman still has her bracelets mm. so that's
0: nice.
1: So there's no. Costume so they're still
0: the characters are just a little bit different.
1: Yeah, just a little bit different. Clark seems a bit more uptight. Yeah. In this story than than he does normal. I think Clark's the most different. Yeah, Bruce Wayne is still Batman. Yeah. He's just not got the cape and the cowl, but he's still Batman. He's still smart. He's still the detective. He still worked all of this out. Yeah. He still bided his time gathering up all the information that he needs to do you no, know, like uh and studied what it is he needs to know to take Elijah Snow down because that's what he's gone there for yeah he's gone there just to get vengeance on Elijah Snow the fact that he's took down planetary is actually incidental mm. that's what was his ultimate goal but here he just wants to get revenge on the guy who killed his parent yeah which is fair enough I was a bit confused in the middle so maybe you can explain this to me. Bruce implores Dr. O'Dell to shut the time loop down as it's a beacon to the planetary. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's basically saying, look, we're here, this is what we're doing. However, he wants planetary to find them. And he's prepared for them to find him.
0: Well, didn't he want to find them so that he can get the jump on them?
1: Yeah, but that's, well, that's the point. If planetary don't show up here, Bruce doesn't get to their moon base, which yeah. is what he wants to do.
0: Yeah. He
1: wants to get on their moon base and find them. Untackle tackle them, sorry, on their own turf before they know that he's coming. He actually says that. Yeah. We can get up there before they know Ambrose Chase is dead. So mm-hmm. they won't know that it's us. But this seemed like a very random occurrence, given that Bruce Wayne, his plan was to take down Planetary.
0: Yeah. I, I got they were planning to do a, a first strike, whereas having this, the Planetary can come at them.
1: So Bruce takes this opportunity as it's handed to him. Yeah. Even though this wasn't part of his initial plan, he takes advantage of it and turns it to his advantage. Yeah. All right, that works for me. It just seemed that, for, given his meticulous planning of everything else, it seems strange that it hinged on this rather random event. Yeah. But it does work better if, as you say, Bruce didn't plan on actually tackling planetary here or now or whatever but so is Opportunity. Sure was lucky Diana and Clark was with it then. Yeah. Wasn't it? So, alright, fair enough. Okay. Warren Ellis goes to great... Oh, sorry, before we get to that we've got a very Matrix bit with Clark as Ambrose talks to him and in the space of saying Kent Clark's analysed him found out where all his guns are burned the teleportation thing out of his pocket, because that's what Bruce is after. So were they... See again then. Bruce actually says we have incoming, you know what to do. Implying that this is part of Bruce's plan. Back up. But it didn't seem like Dr. O'Dell doing this was part of his plan. Alright, okay then, no. Bruce planned on taking Clark and Diana here and doing this, or doing something... Right. Dr. O'Dell doing it wasn't part of his plan. Okay. But that's why Clark and Diana are here, because he had planned on doing this to get to the moon base. Okay. That makes sense. And Dr. O'Dell is the one that nearly screws it up. Okay. That makes sense. Right, okay. So then we get the Matrix thing of Ambrose dancing through um, bullet time. Does Clark snap his hand off? He crushes it. Oh, that's a bit gooey, isn't it? Yeah. He does, actually. And then he turns into Thingio from Marvel Comics. What's his name with the jegs all over his face? Molecule Man. Oh, yeah. Turns into the Molecule Man. Uh, I really do like the line, Time is killing you, Kent. Time is killing everybody. Mm. That's That's a good line.
0: I like that immensely. I just like the throwaway line as well. Oh, he could have been falling for a year. Mm. And it's just so casually thrown out, there. Well, there's
1: a lot of throwaway lines in this that are really intriguing ideas. Yeah. So they kick Ambrose Chase into the time field and presumably he's just disappeared. Yeah. So we don't actually know he's dead. But for mm. the purposes of this story, let's assume that he is dead. So it makes sense. I do like the visual effect on the time displacement portal. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's very like
0: that's how they do Doctor Doom's time machine nowadays, isn't it? Well, that's, that's just how they've done it throughout the authoritarian planetary. Mm,
1: it is good. Uh, the first thing that Elijah does is take Clark out. And Warren Ellis goes to great pains to explain exactly how this works. He points out that solar energy gives Clark his powers. If you exert him at night, I'll take him away from diffuse sunlight, decrease gravity and remove his air, and then just float him off into space, he's going to die. Yeah. Now, there was a couple of things with this. Now, Warren Ellis is much cleverer than me. Okay. But there is sunlight on the moon, isn't there? Depends on whereabouts on the moon they are. Oh, that's true. Yeah, if the planetary... Because there is no such thing as the dark side of the moon, is there? No. Isn't that just a fallacy? But, yeah, if they're on the other side... Hmm. Then all right, okay. So maybe there isn't. However, there is gravity on the moon. Yeah, there's not a lot of it. But it's the. But it's the. Would there not be enough for him to gain some kind of purchase? He only needs a little bit to push himself.
0: Yeah. Back. Well, well, what I got from it was it's it's no secret that Warren Ellis is Warren Ellis is not a big fan of superheroes. He spends an awful lot of time writing them. Money. Well, that's true. But here it kind of seemed like he was doing this because he didn't like Superman and thus would have done anything to kill him off. To get him out of the story quick. Yeah.
1: I See, I didn't read it as he doesn't like him.
0: I read it as
1: if Superman's the the story's over.
0: Yeah, because obviously, he, you know, he's, he's the strongest one there is, the fastest one there is, so just get him out of the way.
1: Yeah, so it kind of made sense that Elijah would take him out of the picture yeah but at the same time there's a part of me that kind of wanted him to survive
0: because he doesn't actually
1: really do anything no he gets rid of Superman before he can well Clark before he can do anything yeah Clark doesn't I mean he takes down Ambrose Chase I suppose mm. without him though, Ambrose would have won Batman and Diana Prince couldn't have done anything about Ambrose yeah. but certainly Diana doesn't seem as strong as, as Clark in this even though in the new DC don't they play up that she's just as powerful as Superman is? yeah Alright, right, okay. It works, and it's it does make sense that you'd want to take the most powerful player out as quickly as possible. But I just thought th- there is a little bit of gravity on the moon. Yeah. Not much, but maybe, meh, you know, whatever. And as we alluded to earlier, Planetary has the Green Lantern Power Battery. They've also taken down all of the Green Lantern core. The dead bodies are kept in Planetary HQ, they've all got bullet holes through the centre of the head. Yeah. So they've all just been executed. So when did they get the power battery then?
0: After they killed them.
1: Because Hal Jordan must have found the power battery at some point. So there must have been a Green Lantern Corps. And in fact they've hunted down the Green Lantern core. How have Planetary hunted down the Green Lantern core? I can buy that they've took out Alan Scott and Hal Jordan. Maybe even Guy Gardner and John Stewart. How have they got Nort and Birdman one? Whose name I
0: don't know. And Kilowog.
1: Yeah, and Kilowog. How have they got all of them? I don't know doesn't make sense does it that, that they managed to take down the core mm. and kept all their bodies that that didn't make sense really maybe it's like oh,
0: yeah, let's kill off a couple of them they'll send replacements we'll kill them off they send replacements alright fair enough maybe they just painted everything yellow yeah <laughs> they just painted the inside of Planetary HQ
1: alright okay fair enough uh, Swamp Thing Cyborg and Metamorphos stuffed and mounted in Elijah Snow's office did you notice that I did yeah I thought that was quite a good touch it, is it a Cyborg to me, it looks like Deathlock. But Deathlock's Marvel, though. But look at him. That's Deathlock. It is. The way it's coloured, he's got a red tunic on instead of a silver tunic. So, yes, he does look like Deathlock. Right. But he can't be Deathlock because Deathlock's Marvel. Okay. So, it must be Cyborg and Metamorpho and Swamp Thing. Originally, I thought that, though, was Blue Beetle. Yeah, it is. But it's actually it's Bruce, isn't it? Yeah. Which kind of makes sense that he'd be dressed like Blue Beetle. <laughs> Maybe he's the Blue Beetle here, not the Batman. Could be. You know, that's kind of good. stays on the next page as well. And yes, he's got Doomsday, he's got a stuffed and mounted Doomsday as well. Has he got a Brainiac 5, though? Because there's Robot Man from Doom Patrol. Oh, yeah. He's got him as well. Is that Brainiac 5? Could be, yeah. The green Brainiac in the pink top. It takes a real man to wear pink. True. Brainiac 5 <laughs> must be a real man. <laughs> pink and green. That's a combination, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, alright, fair enough, that makes sense. Elijah Snow seems a lot older here than in the main planetary comic.
0: Yeah, even though he's supposed to die, at a yeah.
1: Is he? Because Jenny Sparks does, but Elijah lives on, doesn't he?
0: No, they're the same.
1: Right, okay. I don't remember that. I'd have to read Planetary.
0: It's him, Jenny Sparks, and Doc Brass, is it?
1: Yeah, Doc Brass. Yeah. And isn't
0: there somebody else as well? I don't
1: know. I'm not sure. Right. I thought there was another one. Maybe it's in the authorities store, Yeah, well, okay. isn't
0: it Doc Brass in the authority one?
1: Yes, because it's Doc Brass's headquarters, isn't it? He's supposed to be Doc Savage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they're all analogues. Um, Diana... Well, before we get to that, there's the really good fight scene between Batman and Elijah Snow. I say Batman. Bruce Wayne. Um, Bruce is really cool in it. Yeah. He kicks Elijah Snow's ass. It's quite unusual that Ellis created the planetary, so the planetary of his characters to have Batman kick his ass. Mm. That is quite... There's a definitive winner here. Yeah. And it's Bruce Wayne. And then he says, you can't kill me. And then Diana puts a sword through his head. Which was good... Because even in this world, Bruce is not a killer. But it doesn't tell us what she did to Jakita Wagner, who, when last we saw them, was defeating Diana quite roundly. Yeah. She actually just put a sword right through her stomach. How yeah. did Diana survive that because and take out
0: Jaquita? She was needed for a badly set up deus ex. <laughs> I didn't
1: think it was badly set up. I just... I, I thought that was... We left it that Diana had lost... And I thought we were going to get an ending where Bruce Wayne won. Yeah.
0: And Bruce Wayne did it all. Diana asked, what we are going to do with this new world? Well, first we kind of need you to stop you from bleeding. Yeah, death. we,
1: we kind of need to stop you from hemorrhaging.
0: <laughs> yeah. But
1: other than that, that's that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, and the last
1: page is Clark's body floating dead through space. She's a bit downbeat, isn't it?
0: Yeah. It also nice. le- leaves a lot of questions. Yes. There's, Such as? Well, th- there's now the people who were controlling everything in the world are now dead. Yeah, so Bruce Wayne now controls everything. Or the world is just spiralled into chaos.
1: Well, that's the thing with rebellions, isn't it? Ultimately, like, what do you do when you've won? Yeah. Because running a world isn't easy. Mm. So essentially, you've got Bruce Wayne and Diana Prince now as self-appointed gods. Yeah. Because they've not got Clark, though, to ask, uh, act, act as their conscience anymore.
0: But all the, the travels down... The internet's down. Yeah. Technology's down.
1: So I can't imagine that the world is going to actually thank them for this. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the problem with rebellion. <laughs> yes, we may have killed the Emperor in Darth Vader. Now what? <laughs> and You can just say you loads of people going, yeah, yeah, the Emperor may have been evil, but the train's ran on time. <laughs> Under you bloody princess Leia, nothing works.
0: Thanks, leia <laughs> Um,
1: Lots... Lots of lovely touches in this. It's quite a simple Ellsworld tale, really. Yeah. Uh, of a corrupt planetary organisation killing all the DC heroes and storing them away, thus keeping their technology out of the hands of humanity. Planetary are the bad guys here, undeniably. They managed to kill Clark Kent. Bruce Wayne and Diana Prince are still alive and have inherited the world and the planetary moon base and all the goodies, presumably, just going to start a League of Justice. Mm. Uh, we never see the drummer again, so he's still around.
0: Yeah, and Ambrose could still be around for. All Ambrose you know.
1: could conceivably still be around. Yeah, if they wanted to do a sequel or something. But Bruce is aware of the drummer. Yeah. So I presume his first task will be to find him. Well, no, his first task will be to stop Diana from dying. But after that, he'll find the drummer. So mm. all right, yeah, it Was all right. Do you like that one? Uh, yeah. It's a fun little Elseworlds story. There's lots of neat ideas in it. There's lots of good throwaway lines and the artwork's brilliant by Jerry Hardware. Yeah. I don't think it's Alice at his best. No. But it's a fun little story of a kind that you can only get away with in Elseworlds. Planetary also teamed up with the other great Warren Ellis creation, The Authority. It's probably fair to say that without The Authority we don't have The Ultimates, the new 52 take on the Justice League and arguably the Man of Steel movie. The Authority invented the phrase widescreen action and reinvented the superhero by giving the post-atomic concept a glossy new lick of paint to prepare them for the 21st century. It also gave Alan Davis alike Brian Hitch a career... With his radical reinterpretation of superheroes as amoral thugs, Ellis tapped into a long-thought dead idea, the superhero as fascist, ran with it, and created a new paradigm for a superhero comic that, sadly, other creators couldn't emulate no matter how hard they tried. No was this more in evidence than in the authority itself, which stopped being as thought-provoking the minute that he left. Teaming his two concepts together seems so obvious, and he does it really well. Yes. Because this one isn't an else world concept, is it? This one clearly fits in with the authority and planetary's continuity. Yeah. It has more impact, I think, on planetary continuity than the authority. Yeah. The authority kind of just don't know that they're there, hmm. whereas planetary are aware of what authority are up to all the way through it. Yes. But. Ruling the World was written by Ellis without by Phil Jimenez. Is it Jimenez
0: or Jimenez? I thought it was Jimenez.
1: Jimenez! Jimenez, whatever. Uh, the cover's just like a mirror image thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's the authority at the top, and planetary right at the bottom. The night It's Midnighter, isn't it? Yeah. Well, who's the Greyhurt dude? The Greyhurt? Oh, it's Apollo. That's Apollo. Who's the others? Oh, it's been a long time since I read authority. Yeah, Once Jenny Sparks, which puts this before she actually dies, because she does actually die in authority, don't you? Yeah. Spoilers. Well, this,
0: this is in the middle of the two trades, I think.
1: Is it? So it's before Ellis' last... Because he only wrote 12 issues, didn't he? Yeah. Then Mark Miller took over with Frank Whittler. Mm. And then didn't it just go downhill rapidly at that point? I think it did, yeah. After Ellis left. Alright, is it still being published, the authority?
0: Oh, it's become... It became um, Stormwatch. Did it? No, Stormwatch became the authority, didn't it? (laughs) No, New 52 Stormwatch. Oh, right, okay. By Paul Cornell. Right,
1: because Stormwatch were killed off in an Aliens crossover. (laughs) Yeah, Um, (laughs) and... Authority came from that. Yes, yes, it did. Alright, photos. Planetary and the Authority are fighting together against a big old giant octopus in the middle of Rhode Island. I say they're fighting together, but they don't actually communicate or so even acknowledge each other. The Authority handles the actual blowing stuff up portion of the fight, whilst in flashbacks to 1931, we learn that an author has invited Snow to view some strange eggs that came from the bleed. In the here and now, the drummer touches one of these eggs, causing the big old battle we see here. As planetary watch the Authority handle things, Elijah Snow recognises Jenny Sparks and Jaquita thinks it's time they all learned a bit more about the Authority, especially as they are now the leading ruling power on the planet. Jakita proposes an uninvited trip to the Carrier Authority headquarters. A move Elijah is against but both Jakita and Drums think there is too much useful information in their computers. Besides, the Carrier is 50 miles long. Planetary can be in and out before anyone knows they are there. Famous last words. Meanwhile, on the carrier, the authority deduced that the egg was a device designed to specifically kill humans. Jenny vaguely recognises snow, but she doesn't recall from war. Either way, the egg has led them to the Adirondacks, which is also a planetary base, where a planetary analysis team is working on many artefacts already found by the planetary. Sadly, they are mostly dead, killed, or soon to be killed, by the son of the man who performed the autopsy on the author from earlier. The man became obsessed with finding a way to the bleed after finding writings on the author's body. Writings over only to be entrusted to a person who understands death. The final scientist manages to get a signal through to Planetra before he is executed and the man activates the snowflake. The Authority are also alerted to the problems in the Adirondacks, and whilst the Authority fight an army of killer robots emerging from the bleed, Planetary finds the dead body of the man who activated the snowflake. Independently, but simultaneously, both parties deduce that there must be a focused intelligence directing this campaign to destroy the Earth, and this entity is called a World Ruler, which is a twisted version of the Authority. Jakita kicks the device that's spawning the robots back through the snowflake, as Elijah Snow destroys the computer-generating the portal, and the evil Authority are shut out of our world outside our authority have defeated the robot menace the next day Elijah and Jakita admire the world they helped save both ponder the authority and what they would do if they ever had to shut them down and some of that synopsis was helped by Wikipedia (laughs) because it started to get a bit confusing didn't it a little bit yeah this one so what yeah oh right yeah I get it Mm. so alright so thank you whoever wrote that, that I only stole a paragraph Okay. I don't even remember which paragraph it was. I think it was that last one. You know, when it all starts going crazy as hell.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, I love Jenny Sparks. I've always loved Jenny Sparks. I like that she had a story that was told. Yeah. Beginning, middle, end, and she was done, wasn't she? They did that spin-off miniseries.
0: The Mark Miller one. Mark Miller write that. Yeah, which was actually quite good. Which
1: was... It was, yeah. Did John McCrea drew it, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, so that was actually quite good. Um, she also inspired Rose Tyler in Doctor Who. Okay. I don't know that for a fact oh, okay. but I'd bet money on it <laughs> given her Union Jack jumper that she's
0: wearing
1: mm. and uh, what Rose was
0: how so. do we know she's British she's wearing a Union flag t-shirt
1: why would she now? true <laughs> <laughs> She should have my Superman S yes, with the flag in. She should have seen one of them for Canada and Ireland? Have you? I'd love that. I think actually, I'd would I'd, i would like to have one for every flag in the uh, world.
0: Have them outside the United Nations. Yeah, <laughs> Superman S's <laughs> with different flags, and that yeah, would yeah. be awesome. Actually so that would be cool. Uh, the planetary
1: in this story are a lot more likable than the planetary of the previous story, although here they aren't the
0: bad guys. Yeah this is our planetary, yeah.
1: It? Uh this is, this story is also a lot funnier. Yeah. There's some brilliantly funny lines in this. And Elijah, Elijah really does like drums in this story. Yeah, <laughs> literally kicks him in the arse at one point, which was very, very funny. Uh, the bigoted author is supposed to be H.P. Lovecraft.
0: It is in in appearance. It looks just like him. Right. Okay. Although at this time, because I did a bit of research, he he wasn't living in Rhode Island, right, or in Judgment. Now I didn't know where it was. He was living.
1: Ah, uh, but yeah, you
0: know, see, this doesn't have to be H.P. Lovecraft in the story. But it is. It doesn't have to be him. But it is. It's an H.P. Lovecraft type. It only works if it's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh,
1: alright. So where was he living then, research by I don't know, I forgot
0: what it was called. Pre- I didn't know what it was, because it was his last home. He lived right. there and that's where he died. But what it is, this this story is just an updated, modern retelling of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story. Probably Dagon. The, you think? The, the giant octopus, the fighting is Cthulhu.
1: And also bears a startling resemblance to Starroh. Yeah, from the justice. So it works both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Okay.
0: And then to get, because what what Dagon is is he sees the shadow of Cthulhu and he goes crazy and then the Cthulhu's minions go yeah. after him and kill them. So right. here they have the giant octopus Cthulhu. Yeah. And then they're all like, "What's going on here?" And then he has all these minions. The other authority. The robots and the other and
1: authority. There we go.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Very good. I'm glad I have you. <laughs> I miss you when you're not here. Granted, there them. won't be a show when you're not here, so True, yeah. it doesn't make much difference. Um, neither Elijah nor Jenny remember where they know each other from. And there's a brilliantly funny bit where Jenny's, uh, I know him from somewhere, and we do a quick cut that reveals they both slept with each other in 1939. I, yeah. <laughs> For those not familiar with the Authority, or Planetary, both Elijah Snow and Jenny Sparks were born on the first day of 1900. Yeah. And will live for 100 years. Mm. And in Ellis' stories, there's something special about people born on that date. Yeah. Both of those stories will play out over the course of... Elijah doesn't die, though, does he?
0: Well, that's what was funny, because Jenny Sparks, we saw what happened to her, and it was on the turn of the Millennium. Yeah. Whereas because of the delay in Planetary... It's like 2007, and it's still 1999 in story. All right, so Planetary plan of See, I don't remember if Elijah Snow dies. I can't. And we've read it all. I mean, we? he has to. We know he does. Yeah. Because Jenny Sparks.
1: All right, fair enough. There are the usual nods and pastiches of JLA and the Avengers, as well as being the nod to H.P. Lovecraft, like Michael says. Uh, Elijah Snow really hates the drummer, which is brilliant. My favourite abuse of him is when the drummer says who's going to go through the dimensional portal
0: first, and Elijah kicks him through it. Mm. (laughs) I I like him. I'm just fixing his throat. So so he doesn't want his coffee.
1: (laughs) I'm just modifying his windpipe. Yeah. (laughs) Why does he dislike him so much? Because it's his fault. Because he touched the eggs.
0: I don't know, he never liked him for the story.
1: See, within this storyline... He, Elijah said don't touch anything what part of that was unclear yeah. and drummers touch the eggs which has brought the octopus into being hasn't it So this is masterfully structured by Ellis in terms of a read mm. despite both being written by Ellis the authority and the planetary are actually two completely different kinds of stripes yeah. aren't they in tone and to get around this Ellis ten- tells a story where planetary and authority are working the same case but different angles so they don't actually meet each other, which oh. is brilliant. I think somebody called it a non-team up. Yeah, okay. which is great. I can get behind that. The Authority do all the ass kicking, and Planetary do all the sneaking around. Yeah, which fits in with both versions of the comics, doesn't it? Mm. Authority was like we say, big, big ass widescreen action pieces. Yeah, and Planetary was a lot more cerebral. It was very definitely
0: Brian Hitch and John Cassidy Yeah, it
1: was the difference between the two artists. And it's all very reaction packed at the end. It does get a tad confusing but you've got to pay attention to it so that's good. And I'm a sucker for a good last line and in this Elijah says strange world and Jaquita says let's keep it that way. Hmm. That's a brilliant ending. I really did like it.
0: Maybe that's why these two stories go well together then. Hmm. They're both about ruling the world. Yeah well is that what it's
1: called it's just called Lost Worlds isn't it Mm. Um, I'm not entirely certain I knew what was going on here the first time I read it but subsequent rereads it opens up a lot more it was a bitch to synopsis which is why I stole the last paragraph from from Wikipedia I think because it did get quite hard work And I was running out of time. I think I only finished this the day before yesterday or something like that. And I've not reread it, which is I normally do. Uh, this ties in more with the overall planetary series than than the JLA team up did. And the whole non team up angles very well handled. But this captures the humour of planetary better than the other team up. Mm. But the nature of the story that it's telling in the JLA one by Jerry Ardway was largely humorous, wasn't it? Yeah. Humorless. Sorry, not humorous. Jimenez's art is good, complements the action well, very Perez level of detail to it, it's very different to Brian Hitch's work.
0: I think it's very similar to Hitch. Do you think? Yeah. It's
1: more comicy.
0: Although mm. it's Jerry Hardway, so he's quite comicy as well.
1: Yeah.
0: I think like I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Jimenez is the logical choice when you're not having Hitch mm. for the authority. I mean definitely more so than Frank Whitley. I don't think I've read any of Mark Miller and Frank Whitley's stuff. The first stories and the second I know. Trade. Like I said, I don't think I've ever read it.
1: I think I okay. stopped with Warren Ellis. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I bought the both trade paperbacks and I stopped when Warren Ellis left. And I don't think to this day I've read Mark Miller's first story arc. Right, okay.
0: There's
1: probably a reason for that. I think I read something just wasn't as good after Warren Ellis left, so I just ended when Warren Ellis did.
0: Yeah, one, one of the signs is that is you know the ambiguity between the relationship Apollo and Midnight have? Ah, yes. The, one of the first Mark Miller to... took
1: it on, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So there's no ambiguity then, is that what you're going to say? That's exactly yeah. what I'm going to say. So, from subtle to oh, as Mark subtle Miller. as a brick. Yeah, <laughs> from subtle to Mark Miller. Right, so my thinking was if Mark Miller's work is really crap on the authority, I can't unread it. If I just stop when Warren Ellis stops, I've never read that stuff. The Authority is just this perfectly fine little 12-issue arc. And I think it's telling that in the current hardcover reprint of it, it's only those first 12 issues. Right, okay. They've not reprinted Mark Miller's stuff. They've stopped when Warren Ellis stopped. Right. So I stopped there as well, and I've never followed up with the Miller Quirley stuff. Oh, look, Garth Ennis wrote some stuff for the Authority, didn't he?
0: Didn't he write the Kev stuff? He did, and um, so did Morrison. Right. That was back when...
1: Jim Mor- Lee was doing it, wasn't he? I don't
0: know. Oh, no, that, that was that was wildcast, yeah, wasn't this, it? Yeah, this was back when Mark Miller only had a career, because he was piggybacking off Morrison. And Ellis. Well it was Morrison that got him in the business which is why he's not the biggest fan of Matt Miller anymore.
1: Right. Because
0: as soon as Matt Miller made it big he forgot who got him into the business.
1: Well he's referenced um, I read something with Grant Morrison the other day, it may have been an interview show when he said something like back when I was 12 and I thought it was fun to make fun of the French. Yeah. And I thought was that a dig at Matt Miller in the Ultimates? Right. Because it kind of works. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Uh, There's a lot going on in this. Yeah, a ton of stuff going on. In this, as usual for Ellis, he chucks more ideas at the wall in one throwaway team up than most writers doing six issues. I'm not saying he doesn't do compression; he does. But when he's focused like this with unlimited page count, he delivers some great work. These mm. were good. Yeah, these were, these were two really fun comic books. I don't. Why did we pick them this close to the end? We wanted to do the Authority and Planetary, didn't we? Yeah. We've had them down on the list for doing for some considerable time. Mm. And at this point, it's just not going to happen. So do both. So we just thought... Because originally, we were only going to do the Planetary Authority one, weren't we? Yeah. And when I dug it out and both of these were in this, and I looked at Jerry Hardware's
0: out and thought, ah, right, let's do both of them. Well, I said I prefer the Planetary Authority one. I like
1: them both. I do think the Authority team-up is... It's more in keeping with Planetary. Yeah. Whereas the JLA one's just like a fun little Elseworlds tale.
0: Mm.
1: Anyway, it's good. That that's good. A uh, nice little diversion
0: mm-hmm.
1: before we enter into our final trilogy of philosophical blockbusters. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: That's what it is next, isn't it? Mm. Next time on an all-new episode of Hate Kids Comics, the pen, pen, penultimate Something episode. Like Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, closing time. The sun sets on Tommy Monaghan. I'm the Hitman. We'll see you next week.
0: Bye-bye. Goodbye.
1: It's comics is a the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyrighted by their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at 2truefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Secrets. Secrets. Release. What do (laughs) I...